Well, if you haven't already, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23? Luke chapter 23, our key text today. Though I pose it as a statement, I'll ask it to you as a question. What would you do if you had the opportunity to meet Jesus face to face, living and breathing right now? I'm not talking about our former Jesus, Mark Bogan, our current Jesus in our Easter play, Jason Moore. You can meet those guys right over here. They're very nice fellas. But I'm talking about the real God's only son, Jesus. What would you do if you had the opportunity to meet Jesus? I mean, think about it for a minute. Would you say, okay, Jesus, can I meet you anywhere? Can we go back in time because you're God's only son and, you know, see what something was like in the Bible days and times? Or maybe could we meet in a place that, you know, you wanted to hear his perspective there, kind of like going to a historical site or something, uh, like you might visit Normandy or a uh, other battlefield or a monument. And while you're there, try to soak in the sense of what that was like and look at it. Would you meet Jesus at a place like that? Or would it be wow, this is Jesus, I better take him to the nicest restaurant in town. Or maybe it would be, it's Jesus, he likes to hang out with people. I'm going to have him over to my house and have a cookout and invite my friends over and we're just going to chill out and, you know, visit. Maybe a beautiful spot. Maybe you'd want to say, hey, Jesus, can you give me a sneak peek of heaven without dying yet? I mean, I know you've got all power. Could you like shoo, bring me up to heaven and let me take a peek and, um, you know, meet at your house instead of my house, Jesus? I don't know. I mean, if you could do anything, would you go to dinner with Jesus? Would you have coffee with Jesus? Or maybe it'd be like, you know, I've always wanted to try skydiving. If I went with Jesus, surely I wouldn't die. I don't know. But I imagine if you had the opportunity to meet Jesus face to face, you would probably take it. Most of us would. It might be a little intimidating because it's Jesus, but you'd want to meet him. And so that's the idea I have in mind here because of what we see in our key text today. Uh, we're continuing to preach through the Gospels, all four Gospels, in a harmony of the Gospels fashion, and this is where we're at today. So two weeks ago, we talked about Judah's suicide, because that's where we were at. Uh, last week, we talked about the trial that Pilate had, and actually what we're seeing today, this trial before Herod, is in between the text from last week, but I felt like we had to set the stage. So there's really two parts of the Pilate trial, Pile. Pilate meets Jesus and, uh, you know, he's trying to give Jesus an opportunity to set himself free because he sees that the Jewish leaders are politically motivated and Jesus really hasn't done anything that was a crime. But Jesus won't do the sort of things Pilate say. And then Pilate has the wise idea, let's send him over to Herod because Herod's in town as well for the uh, uh, celebrations. And so maybe Herod can make the decision so I don't have to. Pilate, as we talked about last week, was trying to get himself out of making the decision, trying to set Jesus free, trying to find a way. And so he sends him to Herod. And then you have what we're going to talk about today and then the end of last week's sermon where Herod sent him back to Pilate for Pilate to make the decision. So setting the stage there a little bit, let me just mention what I said last week. That when it came to what we know as modern-day Palestine in Israel... 
that that area of Palestine belonged to Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had sons, and, uh, and these sons he put in charge of different parts of it, three sons, Herod Antipas, or Antipater, that ruled Galilee and Perea. So Galilee was where Jesus is from, right? And then there was uh, a son named Philip, and maybe Philip wasn't the shark doing anything out there. Then Archelaus got Judea, Samaria, and Idumea because, well, more stuff's going there. So it seems like Archelaus might have been the favorite of Herod's son. And so there's Herod the Great and then Herod Antipas. The Herod we're talking about in this passage of Scripture is Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. So different levels of rulers. But over Herod the Great and over his three sons is the procurator of the region. And that would be like the governor of the state. And that's Pontius Pilate. So what you have happening from last week is the Jewish leaders say... We want to put Jesus to death. We don't like him. Here's our opportunity. And Pilate is in town for the festival. We're going to trump up some charges and send him to Pilate because Pilate is the chief Roman official in the entire area. And if Pilate says so, Jesus is done. Well, Pilate's like, "Mm, not going to do it. Uh, And so Pilate comes up with this idea that I'm going to send him over to Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas is from Jesus' home region. And it was not uncommon for Roman officials, that your crime would be tried in the region it was committed, but it could be tried in the region in which you were from. And so Pilate is trying to find one more way to get himself out of having to make a decision about Jesus, and he sends him over to Herod. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, that Jesus Early in the morning still, 6, 7 a.m., going from one kangaroo court to the other, is now paraded before Herod. So I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. And we're going to read these few short verses, Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. On hearing this, Pilate asked if uh, the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends before they had been enemies. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come into the middle of this historical setting that we may know not too much, and we see people behaving in ways that confuse us or upset us, things that we just don't understand why they would do what they're doing and what would be their motivation. And we see our Lord Jesus, innocent, standing before all these things. We have all sorts of emotions that well up within us and all sorts of questions. So we pray, God, that you help us through the emotions, to answer some questions, that by your spirit and by our study, we would be able to see more clearly your will 
for our lives because your scripture is timeless and you are sovereign. We thank you, God, for your presence among us now. And we look forward to all we'll learn in these moments ahead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We've got our scripture memory verse for the month up there. And I'll ask you to say it with us. It comes from, or with me, it comes from next week's sermon, the last sermon in the month. And you'll gather the context by the verse. Let's say it together. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Luke 23, 34. I feel there's times when we still act like we don't know what we're doing, even though we should know what we're doing. And Jesus would still have to offer this prayer for us, wouldn't he? So we come to our passage of Scripture today. I've set the scene for you as quickly as I could with the trials of Jesus going on and Jesus being before Pilate, the chief Roman official, now being handed over to Herod Antipas, the Roman official in charge of Galilee where Jesus is from. And so notice verse 6, on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was from Galilee. Well, look back up. We used Matthew last week to narrate our passage because Matthew had the most context for Pilate. Now we're switching over to Luke in our Harmony of the Gospels type fashion, right? And so if we go back up and read the first few verses to help us from verse 1 of chapter 23 of Luke. It says, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. So that's the Jewish leaders. They had Jesus before him in the Sanhedrin. So now they're taking him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So these are the things that they know would get Jesus in trouble with Pilate. They're twisting the truth a little bit. They know what Jesus is talking about, but they're motivated by their jealousy of Jesus, their threat to his power, their threat to his religion. And they very well may honestly think he is a fraud and a phony and a blasphemer and be uh, filled with religious zeal to kill Jesus. Verse 3, so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And remember before when the chief priest Caiaphas had asked Jesus. Jesus said nothing. We saw here in the passage with Herod Antipas when Herod asked Jesus. Jesus says nothing. But here, maybe because Jesus thinks Pilate's question is genuine, maybe because he knows Pilate is not going to be used as a tool, he answers him. Yes, It is as you say, Jesus replied. Verse 4, then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for charge against this man. Verse 5, but they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And then Pilate has his out. He started in Galilee. Then we get to verse 6. Pilate asked if he was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at this time. So this is the feast of the Passover. If you're a Roman official trying to make yourself look good with the Jewish people, what do you do? You show up. 
I mean, it might be like any other party gathering. It might be that you don't believe in it necessarily, but you want to be around the people, or hey, it's a party. Uh, Even if it's not our type of party, I'm going to show up. But whatever his motivation is, Herod showed up, Pilate showed up. They're all there at Jerusalem and by God's sovereign plan at this time. So Herod is there as well, probably based on what we know about King Herod Antipas trying to curry favor with the Jews by looking like he's doing the right things. He's there. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod to make the decision. It may have been that Pilate was trying to pass the buck because he thought Jesus was innocent. It may have been that he was honestly seeking Herod's assistance due to his familiarity with Judaism. He'd been around a little longer. It may have been that he was seeking to honor Herod by the request of counsel in hopes to make amends for something that had taken place in their past. You get an idea of that in verse 12 when it says before they had been enemies. We can't be sure why Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Absolutely. We have these ideas. But one thing we can be sure of is Luke's purpose in recording it. That he wanted to give another Roman official the opportunity to declare Jesus' innocence and declare Jesus as God's son. That Luke, in his purpose of writing the gospel, told certain stories under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. But Luke records this in order that we, his readers, even thousands of years past, would learn certain things about Jesus. So what we have here, and your first point on your outline, is that you can ignore the facts when you don't want to decide about Jesus. There are a variety of responses to meeting Jesus, our sub-point there, major point. But you can ignore the facts when you don't want to decide about Jesus. Pilate didn't want to decide. He's seeking to ignore the facts because he doesn't want to make himself look bad and get the Jews all riled up. So then the question that applies to us, how do people ignore the claims of Jesus? What about people you know? How is it that when you seek to present the truth of Jesus to them, they try to ignore those claims? Try to make excuses for Jesus. Oh, it's an old book. It's full of fables. It's full of lies. It's full of contradictions. Or, you know, that's okay for you. That's what you believe. But I'm just going to be a good moral person. And, you know, I believe all of us are going to get to heaven or the afterlife, however. I mean, you've heard those kind of things before. Maybe you were the person that said those sort of things and made those kind of excuses. Maybe you still are. And maybe you could come up with a whole much longer, more lengthy explanation than I have time to talk about here in a sermon because we've got some other verses and some other points to make here. But we know that all of us, when we aren't comfortable with something, can be very creative at ignoring facts. We can come up with all sorts of reasons we don't want to pay attention to the truth that is standing right before us. And Pilate maybe in a good way, not necessarily in a negative way, is trying to get around what's going on here. And he's ignoring the facts of Jesus. And rather than declaring Jesus innocent and setting him free, he passes the buck for whatever motivation and sends him off to Herod. Which leads to our second question to apply to us. How have I ignored 
Jesus in my life. Now, it may be that you've never trusted Christ Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. You've never trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, so you are still ignoring Jesus. You sit here in church, you hear sermons from the Bible, you go to Sunday school, you hear uh, lessons from the Bible, you listen to Christian radio, have Christian people all around you in your family, they're talking to you about the Bible, but you're ignoring Jesus for whatever reason. You don't want to give up control, you have fear. You just can't imagine faith. You've got too many intellectual questions that don't seem to be answered uh, by this preacher or whoever you look to or read. And so you just tell yourself, I'm going to ignore this. But then there's the other group of us, which may be more of us here this morning. And it may be that you've already trusted Christ Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you know you're going to heaven when you die, but you've kind of wandered away from a close personal relationship with Jesus and you're really living life as a heathen Christian, a backslidden Christian and living life by your own rules and you are ignoring Jesus every day. And to make it worse, you have the Holy Spirit within you speaking to you, seeking to convict you of sin, seeking to show you the right direction, seeking to lead you and you're just ignoring Him. All of us can make up reasons To ignore what seems reasonable when we don't want to pay attention, when we don't want to change, when we're afraid of what it might mean. Sometimes it's easier to ignore things than decide. Have I told you the story before about when I was in Habaroni, Botswana at the little game park, the Habaroni game park, and I came upon an ostrich sitting on the nest? I don't know how it works out this way, but the male ostrich is the one that gets situated with sitting on the nest. The lady goes and does whatever she does, right? So I'm driving through this dusty, scrubby game park, and here, right beside the road, is this gigantic black and white male ostrich sitting down. And I noticed from under his feathers some stick-looking things. I thought, it's an ostrich sitting on the nest. So, of course, I get out my camera. I had a big camera with a big lens, and I'm zooming in on him and taking pictures and everything like that. The ostrich gets uncomfortable of me being so close and taking pictures. He gets up from the nest, and he goes behind a tree that is about this wide, and he hides from me. And he looks around at me like this, looks around at me, looks around at me. And I had pictures of that on my camera, the very camera that was stolen later that night. And, of course, I never recovered it and don't have pictures of it, so I just have the story to tell. How many of us are like that bad ostrich, right? That we think we're hiding from everybody who might see what's wrong with our life, but everybody's going, dude, you're sticking out a little bit. We see your fluffiness, and, you know, when you stick your head around, I know that you're there. I mean, as believers in Jesus, we're really good at being bad ostriches, aren't we? That we try to ignore what Jesus is saying to us in our life. But everybody else can see it, and we should see it. And frankly, we try to ignore it because we do. Let's move on with our passage of Scripture, verse 8 and 9. 
So when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. So keep in mind, Herod's up in his palace in Galilee. Jesus' ministry is taking him all over the area. He went to Galilee some. It was kind of his home base of operations to begin with. But Jesus' popularity is growing. Obviously, Herod's hearing reports from all sorts of people. Dude, I saw him heal somebody. Yes, it was the guy that really was blind. I tell you the truth. Or did you hear about how the the, the five loaves and fishes to fed all these people? Herod, this guy is crazy. He's got some sort of power. Herod, you really ought to get him on your side. Maybe he could do some good things for you and, uh, you know, this backwater kingdom we live in. So he's hearing all these things about Jesus for years of Jesus' active ministry. What does it say there in verse 8? From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He wanted to treat Jesus like you might want to treat a magician if they showed up at your house. Hey, man, do a trick for me. I want to see if I can figure this out. You know, do a little sleight of hand, a little card trick. Or maybe do something like that guy, David Blaine, that's on TV that does really freaky, inexplicable stuff. Come on, Jesus, do a trick for me. Of course, we recoil at that and think, you've got to be kidding me. It's Jesus. You can't treat him that way. But we're not Herod, right? Verse 9. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. I would like to think that if Jesus gave him any answer, Luke would have recorded it, right? But Luke says Jesus gave him no answer. He didn't say anything to him. Your second point on your outline is that you can seek your own pleasure when you don't care to truly understand Jesus. I'm talking about Herod there, right? Herod didn't care to find out if Jesus was the Christ You know, was he a threat to Roman rule or authority? That wasn't Herod's gig at all. Herod was like, come do a trick for me, Jesus. Come on, dance, circus boy. Herod was all about his own pleasure. He didn't care to truly understand who Jesus was, even why Jesus had been brought before him. You get the idea, even from this little insight, that Herod maybe was not the best ruler because he was... Pretty well self-absorbed. It's another one of these guys that got his post as a ruler just because of who he was related to that was a little closer to Caesar back in Rome. We do the same thing, don't we? Your first question is, what do most folks want from God? Well, they don't want God to be mean at them. They're afraid, you know, he's going to... Get him with a lightning bolt or something. Be judgmental. That's one part of it. But the other part is we want the good things God can give to us, right? Well, we want the blessings. God, we want you to provide for me. I I need a job. I, you know, uh, it'd be nice if I had a little extra money so I could do this or that. You know, Um, God, I need these things. And so we can come with our list of wants to God and treat God however we've made him as a false God. Like he's some sovereign Santa or some Jesus was a genie in a lamp sort of guy. That's what most folks want from God. But your second question there asks, what would I like God to do for me? The first question was about what you think other people want from God. And that sometimes is a little easier to say, oh, those 
bad people would want God to do this, this, or this. But the second question is a little more difficult, and it should be because it's personal. What would I like God to do for me? And just because it's on your mind doesn't mean it's negative. We know from Scripture that God wants to provide for you. Scripture says, my God will provide all your needs. So if you find yourself in lack right now financially or with relationship support or with health, you can pray without feeling anything negative about it, but being assured that Scripture says so that God will provide for your needs, and you should pray that. You look at Scripture and the model it gives for relationships and how God holds up how we should love and care for and honor and encourage one another. And you need more of that in your relationships. You can and should pray for that. You look at Scripture and see that it's always pushing us to faith, opposed to our doubts, opposite of our fears, that if you're lacking in faith, you can and should pray for faith. But sometimes our motives are for selfish things that we'd use for ourselves, and we don't really have any concern for God or His kingdom. So we have to be honest. If we could have God give us anything, help us to be anything or become anything, what would it be? And is it for our own pleasure or is it for his glory and his kingdom? What would I like God to do for me? As we move on in our passage of Scripture, verses 10 and 11, reminded in verse 9 that Herod asked him lots of questions, but Jesus gave him no answers. And so while Herod is trying Jesus, some sort of trial, right? He was more interested in performing Jesus than seeking the truth or knowing why Jesus was there. While he's trying, and I'm putting up my air quotes there, the chief priests and the teachers of the law who are along with Jesus in order to make sure this goes their way, they see that since Jesus is not saying anything for himself, and since Herod necessarily, not necessarily is concerned about the real charges that they're bringing against him of subversion to Caesar and you know, going against the tax code and all these other things that they're saying Jesus has said to people, that then they decide they better up the ante. And it says that the chief priest... And teachers of the law were standing there and vehemently accusing him. That word there is a good translation, vehemently, of what it means in Greek. It means that they were as nasty and ugly as they could possibly be. They were spitting fire at Jesus and whoever would listen. They had themselves all up in a tizzy, as we might say, in Texas. And then verse 11 said, Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Jesus wouldn't do what Herod wanted, so Herod turns to this sadistic play of ridiculing and mocking Jesus. They dressed him in an elegant robe and sent him back to Pilate. I don't know exactly what they were doing, but it doesn't sound kind, does it? Herod had no interest in the case, and Jesus wouldn't do what Herod wanted him to do, so Herod turns to mockery. 
And in his mockery of Jesus is really making mockery of the Jewish leaders in that they were trumping something up because there's not anything to do. And really, when he puts the robe on Jesus and they start acting like Jesus is Lord or whatever and a king and bowing down before him, Herod is actually making fun of the Jewish leaders that are accusing them. But I mean, it's pointing back on him as well. But here's what Dr. Leon Morris said. Leon Morris is brilliant. And a point for us to consider. With the very Son of God standing before him, Herod could only jest. With the very Son of God standing before him, Herod could only jest. That's where I get the title for today's sermon. If you met Jesus face to face, what would you do? This is Herod's response, and it's just despicable and shallow and lowly. And I mean, you're like, come on, man, what were you thinking? But what would you do if the very Son of God was standing before you? Your third point there is that you can go negative when you'd rather not admit Jesus is God's Son. You can go negative. Our first point was that you can ignore the facts when you don't want to decide, talking about Pilate. The second one is you can seek your own pleasure when you don't care to truly understand Jesus, talking about Herod Antipas. And this third point is that you can go negative when you'd rather not admit that Jesus is God's son. This point is talking about all those opposed to Jesus here. It's talking about the Jewish leaders that they got vehement, remember, used ugly words and said them very loudly and repeatedly. It's talking about Herod and his uh, soldiers who made fun of Jesus and mocked him. And they all went negative in one way or the other because they didn't want to admit who it was standing right before them. And even though Herod asked him questions, apparently they were not substantive questions because Jesus, it seems, would have answered them. He did with Pilate, but he didn't with Herod because he knew what was in Herod's heart. And so they went negative rather than admitting who it was standing before them. You know anybody like that? Rather than seriously consider Jesus, they make fun of Jesus or they make fun of you. They say ugly things to you and ugly things about our Lord Jesus. And they go negative. Because sometimes it's easier to do that than to be honest. When doing that means we can ignore the conviction within us and our conscience that tells us that we're wrong, it is easier. Rather than honestly consider, could Jesus be God's son? Could the Jesus revealed in the Bible actually be the savior of the world? Could the Jesus I see in the pages of Scripture Make a difference in my life. It's easier to make fun. It's easier to ignore than to be honest with yourself. Sometimes I feel like a kid again. You know how kids pick on each other. And pick on silly little things that don't really matter. And they can really be cruel and mean. And you see things playing out in relationships with people you know. Whether it's face to face. 
or on Facebook or some social media where people are nitpicking little things that don't matter, but they're missing the larger issue. That's what we have happening here. Your first question there asks, why would someone react so strongly to Jesus? Well, depends on your view of Jesus, right? I mean, if you see him as who he says he is, you're going to react strongly to him. Because remember, C.S. Lewis put forth, there's only three choices for who Jesus is, and they all begin with an L if you want to write them down. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, he's Lord. He's a liar that he is not who he said he is. He made it all up and he conned all these people, and if they knew the inside, they went along with him. So that's one option. The second option is that he could be a lunatic, that he's absolutely crazy, and that he had all these people convinced, however, that he wasn't crazy, and they followed him, thousands of people, but somehow was able to manufacture all these miracles, or all the folks went along with him on that, even though they weren't real. Or the third option for who Jesus is, is exactly who he says he is. He's Lord. And by the way he preached, by the way he taught, by the miracles he did, and the life that he lived without sin, with all these people watching him very carefully trying to see if he would sin, hoping he would stumble. He's absolutely who he said he is. He's Lord. And if he is Lord, and people see that in Scripture, and they see that in your life, and see that in other Christians' life, of course they might react strongly to him. They don't understand him. He's a threat to their Life, a threat to their control. They hate him in their hearts. They twist him in their minds. That's why somebody could react strongly. But your final question there is, what of my belief of who Jesus is? I'm not asking you, what does someone else think? What does your mom think? What does your Sunday school teacher think? What does Pastor Aaron think? But what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe what I'm standing here saying, that Jesus is Lord? That Jesus is God's only son and that Jesus is your only way to eternity in heaven and an abundant life here on earth. That Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is. Do you believe that as well or not? Or maybe not all the way. You've got to consider what the Bible says. The Bible says that God gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever, that could be you, believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The Bible says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, even right now, you might be a sinner and going, yeah, that's me. Christ died for you. The Bible says that of our sins, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the Bible says of us that if we believe and receive him, we have the right to become children of God. No matter who you are, no matter where you've done, no matter what you've uh, done, no matter what's been done to you, God loves you. The Bible says so. What's your belief about Jesus? And are you willing even now to change your mind? Verse 12 in our scripture. As I alluded to at the beginning of the sermon, it's, it's curious because we don't know the answer. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Herod made fun of Jesus and dressed him in a robe and sent him back to Pilate. Rather than being angry about it, because Pilate was hoping Herod would take care of the dirty work for him, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before that, they had been enemies. 
We don't know why they'd been enemies before. Scripture or extra-biblical commentators don't tell us. Was it about jurisdiction or taxation or just jealousy of power or authority or, you know, uh, image or something like that? But this macabre play that is the trial of Jesus causes them to become friends. That says something about the character of those two fellows, doesn't it? You've got a final point on your outline, and it's for your consideration. Because we've looked at three different responses to if you met Jesus face-to-face. But what would you do if you met Jesus face-to-face? So there's no blank to fill in here except the blank that you fill in on your outline. If you met Jesus face-to-face, how would you respond? Would you make fun of him? Would you ignore him? Would you fall down in front of him and call him Lord? All of us have to make that decision. Scripture tells us if you don't make that decision now, that when eternity comes to earth and Christ sits in judgment of all people who have ever lived, that every person will bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The problem is, if you've never trusted him as your Savior and Lord while you're living, and you meet him that way in judgment, your judgment will be eternity in hell, not eternity in the glory of heaven. If you haven't trusted him already, you have that opportunity right now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we all have different experience, different lives, and then based on where we've been and what we've been taught and what we've studied, different understanding of who Jesus is. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, And through your word, you would have convicted and convinced somebody today that Jesus is Lord, just as the Bible says. And if they haven't already, that they would trust him as their personal savior. And for those of us, Father, who are believers in Jesus, but we somehow find ways to ignore what he's telling us, that we would confess that today too. So God, would we respond to you with faith and obedience this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.